Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. We have incredible guests. We have a very corrupt system that is not so incredible. We have new COVID data, and wow, we need a reckoning. All that and more coming up on I'm Right. Yesterday was Memorial Day, and we did a Memorial Day special for you here on the first. I hope you enjoyed it. If not, you can go back and watch, but it was Memorial Day. And what's Memorial Day about? honoring the fallen. Nothing else. It's not about politics, left, right. It's not about veterans. It's not about the border. It's not about abortion. It's not about anything. It's certainly not about guns. It's about honoring the fallen. And maybe some people have forgotten. We have not forgotten on this show. We just lost 13 very recently. We lost 13 warriors in this country. Pulled out of Afghanistan, turned out to be a disaster, had our guys standing in the middle of a crowd. ISIS suicide bomber blows himself up, kills 13 of our guys. And that's kind of important, right? And Joe Biden chose not to mention their names yesterday. We thought it would probably be appropriate 
to mention their names today, since the President of the United States of America didn't think it was appropriate to mention their names in his Memorial Day speech. Ryan Noss, Umberto Sanchez, Hunter Lopez, Riley McCollum, Dylan Marola, Dagan William Tyler, Joanny Rosario, Jared Schmitz, Max Soviak, David Espinoza, Nicole G, Darren Taylor Hoover, Kareem Nakao. Not only did the President of the United States of America get up yesterday and not even mention the 13 warriors who died under his watch, he used the speech as an opportunity to talk about guns? A 22 caliber bullet will lodge in a lung, and we can probably get it out, maybe able to get it and save the life. A 9mm bullet blows the lung out of the body. The Constitution, the Second Amendment, was never absolute. You couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment was back. You couldn't go out and purchase a lot of weapons. And those who, not many are saying anymore, but there was a while there where people were saying that, you know, the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots, and what we have to do is have to be able to take on the government when they're wrong. Well, to do that, you need an F-15. Okay, well, um, a couple things here. That's Memorial Day, Mr. President. It's Memorial Day, not gun-grabbing day. It's Memorial Day. Two, everything he just said there is an outright lie. The, again, maybe these communists would have more success winning over gun people if they knew anything about guns. A 9mm bullet blows the lungs out of the body. A 9mm bullet is like that big. It looks like Eric Swalwell. It's, it's nothing. It doesn't blow the lungs out of the body. Also, Mr. President, it's the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. That was the founders of this country who said those things, so keep that in mind. Also, you need an F-15 to take down the government, really? Tell that to the Taliban! All right, you know what? We're going to go to my buddy Josh Hammer. He is, of course, the Newsweek opinion editor and host of the Josh Hammer Show. Josh, if I wanted to convince somebody of my gun arguments, I would take, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes and learn something about guns. I think that would be effective. Jesse, first of all, I'm happy that you read the names of those who passed away in Afghanistan last August. I, I, will, be, I will be the first to admit I'm in this news commentary business for a living. So much time has passed since then that I had almost forgotten that that happened. So seriously, thank you for that. But getting to Joe Biden here yesterday, I mean, look, a nine millimeter cartridge is standard issue for every police officer in America. <laughs> a nine millimeter handgun is by far the most common handgun. My concealed carry piece is a nine millimeter short. It's a very slightly different cartridge, but whether it's a 380 auto, which is my cartridge or a nine millimeter, those are the most standard issue handgun cartridges in America. And obviously from a gun control, gun grabbing Democratic Party perspective, it gives way the entire game here, obviously. They talk a lot oftentimes when these horrific abominable, unconscionable mass shootings happen. They talk about so-called assault weapons, one of which I also own, and I'm also not giving that piece up. But sometimes they talk about that, but this, this gives away the real game here. The real game for the Democrats is ultimately not your rifles. It is not your shotguns. It is handguns, because to this day, handguns in America do comprise the overwhelming majority 
of gun homicides. Obviously, the vast majority of those gun homicides happen in largely urban, blue, Democratic-governed enclaves like Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. They happen in drive-by shootings, gang turf wars, but they're mostly with handguns. So it, it's kind of a Freudian slip. It kind of gives away the entire game here, which, I, which from my perspective is ultimately the seizing, banning, or something to that effect of handguns themselves. Josh, why this now? I mean, I understand they always just stand on dead bodies in the wake of a shooting and go for guns. That's become sadly, very sadly, standard ever since Barack Obama was president. But we're dealing with the Democratic Party now. All, all things else aside, very unpopular. Joe Biden's unpopular. Vice President Dome is unpopular. The party themselves are unpopular. And they're going to gun grab. This is not a winner, or is it? Historically speaking, guns are a major, major losing issue for the Democratic Party. For the love of God, I actually have no idea what they think they're trying to do here. The polling numbers for Democrats this fall are abysmal. Joe Biden's approval ratings are low 40s, high 30s, depending on the poll. Depending on precisely how you think it'll play out, Republicans have a chance to gain their largest congressional majority since the Calvin Coolidge administration a century ago. So things are looking quite good for them. I have no idea why they think this is a particularly good issue for them to run on. Historically speaking, over the past 25, 30 years, conservatives have lost a lot of ground and a lot of cultural issues. The gun issue is one ground where conservatives have by and large been winning. I mean, a lot of purple states, light red states have been getting constitutional carry or general kind of liberalization of gun laws, uh, more generally speaking there. This is just not a good issue for Democrats. And even, you know, unlike the abortion issue where we've kind of seen the total and complete end of the so-called pro-life Democrat, there are still some Democrats, increasingly few, but there are still some from more rural kind of red areas. Joe Manchin's obviously a prime example, who's just not gonna be down with a gun control agenda. Because at this point, Jesse, as you and I both know, there are more firearms in circulation in America than there are people. Whether we want to have a well-armed citizenry is an interesting academic discussion. That ship happened to sail 230 plus years ago. <laughs> okay, when the Second Amendment was there in the Bill of Rights in 1791. That argument was had, we have a well-armed citizenry. And at this point, any restrictions like this will simply increase the, will simply increase criminals and will hurt law-abiding citizens. Josh, you have a piece up in Newsweek about the Uvalde shooting. People are looking for answers. What's what's your take on this whole awful bit of business? Look, so Jesse, like you, I well, used to live in Texas. I, I used to live in Texas. That's how we became friends years ago. I used to live in Texas, and my mother's actually an elementary school teacher. So this one actually hit home for me a little bit more. I think a lot of people have become numb to these horrific headlines. This one actually did come home for me a little bit, especially with just the horrific, horrific uh, details we are learning about police misconduct and police failure. 19 police officers standing there outside the classroom, cowardly refusing to go in. And it ultimately became Border Patrol, who had to go in after a half hour of listening to the Uvalde police officers. After a half hour, they basically said, what are we doing here? Why are we not going in? So I really want there to be accountability for what happened there as far as horrible police misconduct. And I'm generally the biggest defender of the police. Over and over again, I defend the police against the anarchists, the defund the police crowd. I repeatedly defend them. But what happened here appears appears to be very, very bad. But look, more gun control is simply not the answer, okay? One thing that I that I pointed out in this column at Newsweek, and I hope that this talking point gets out there a little bit more, what I would really like people to start looking at, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, we made it much, much tougher 
to involuntarily commit mentally ill, deranged people in this country to asylum. This is around the time that Jack Nicholson was making One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was kind of the cultural backdrop in America at that time. But we made it much harder to get mentally ill people off the streets. All of these mass shooters share one thing in common, if nothing else. They are mentally ill, psychopathic, deranged, insane people who should not be on the streets, who should be in asylums, should be taken away from us. And if we actually start to liberalize these laws, we could also kill two birds with one stone because a large proportion of the homeless people in large cities across the country also happen to be mentally ill, actually. So that's one thing that I really hope conservatives in particular start talking about a little bit more is reforming our civil commitment laws, actually. Josh, actually, I'm glad you brought this up because I frankly wanted to text you about this, this whole mental institution, mental health thing. I guess we'll probably talk off the air too. We'll also do it in front of everybody right now. Here's what I'm worried about. I don't disagree with you about the need to check people into mental health facilities, but I worry about a mental health academic system that we have right now in this country that is, I mean, to say left wing would be putting it mildly. It is hardcore, hardcore to the left. And we're going to do what, Josh? Hand those people the keys to decide who should be locked away for their insane beliefs? I mean, I think they could probably listen to one episode of the Josh Hammer show and decide Josh <laughs> Hammer's not right in his mind and should be locked in a padded room. And I don't think that's out of line to think that they would use their abuse their power that way. Jesse, it's a really good point. It's funny you should mention that, actually. I was getting drinks here in Miami last night with a friend who raised this exact same point to me, actually. It, it, it is an extremely important point. It's actually a pretty persuasive one. Look, it's going to get down to pragmatic prudential policymaking. I mean, the, the, the details in each policy are going to differ, whether it's at a federal level, whether it's at a state level. Certainly, I think basically what you said is basically my arguments against red flag laws, because so-called red flag laws, first of all, they don't actually work. I mean, think about New York State, which has a red flag law. It certainly did not stop the mass shooter there at the supermarket in Buffalo, New York, a couple of weeks ago. But red flag laws, it seems to me, based on my review of them so far, very little evidence is actually needed whatsoever to take away the person's guns. So you, you hold aside the fact that they're not effective in the first place. That is a massive intrusion on liberty without any semblance of due process. The kind of civil commitment laws I'm talking about would have to entail, a, obviously, a, you know, a real kind of evidentiary hearing, like a full, ideally kind of federal judicial kind of trial. I mean, real evidence, due process. I, I, I hear you loud and clear, and I think it's an extremely important point. And I think policymakers, if this were to pick up steam and this policy start to get out there, would have to bear in mind exactly what you're saying there. Because at the, at the end of the day, the worst people to empower, obviously, are left-wing bureaucrats who basically just want to throw us in the gulag. So I hear you loud and clear. I'm not sure exactly how to draw the line here, but I think we probably can thread some sort of needle. Lord willing. Josh Hammer of The Josh Hammer Show. Thank you so much, my brother. Appreciate you. Anytime. All right. The system protects its own. You say that all the time, right? Well, got an update on the latest when it comes to that here in a second. All that may have made you uncomfortable, but I'm right. And something else will make you uncomfortable. You know that email you sent earlier? The email you got earlier? You know, speaking of the worst people being in control, you know people who hate you are reading those, right? They're collecting all the information in those emails. They're not only collecting them, they're selling them to other people. Your worst enemies, they read your email. Why are you doing that? Go get secure. It's a Swiss-based company. They can't be touched by any of these absurd communist American laws. 
$7.50 a month when you go to secure.com and use the code JESSE, get you a big discount, and you get totally secure, totally private emails. Secure.com code JESSE. Protect yourself, all right? We'll be back. Each morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning. I have a few thoughts to share now that the trial has ended. First, I told the truth to the FBI, and the jury rec clearly recognized that with their unanimous verdict today. I'm grateful to the members of the jury for their careful and thoughtful service. Despite being falsely accused, I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. See? Justice was done. No big deal. I don't know what you're stressing about. That was, of course, Michael Sussman, Hillary Clinton's lawyer after he got acquitted in D.C. today. An Obama judge, a Hillary Clinton donor, an AOC donor on the jury. I don't know. The whole thing stinks to me. Joining me now to talk about that, Margot Cleveland, senior legal correspondent, at the Federalist. All right, Margo, you actually predicted an acquittal on Friday. That's pretty bold. You obviously nailed that one. As you take your victory lap, tell us why you knew this was coming. Well, the reason I thought there was going to be an acquittal is the witnesses for the government were not happy about being there. You saw James Baker, who said, look, this isn't my prosecution. This is your prosecution. You asked me to look for something. I looked for it. Then you had Bill Priestap, who was clearly grudgingly being there. If the people who were lied to by the defendant didn't care, why is the jury going to care? The other reason is one of the things the jury had to decide was the question of materiality. And legally, you don't need a lot for materiality. But practically, the jury's going to look at it and say, basically, what difference at this point does it make anyway? So I think that that was where I came down. We also have that this is a DC jury. Whether or not they were Hillary donors or Bernie Sanders donors or AOC donors, which some of them were, these are people who live and work in the district. They have friends who live and work in the district. So he was acquitted by a jury of his peers. And the jury of his peers was members of the D.C. establishment, whether they have someone personally working there or it's somebody who's a neighbor whose kid is on the same team as the defendant. Either way, you have it there. One thing, though, I think is interesting is the clip you played where he said, I told the truth to the FBI. I want to know what he's claiming he told to the FBI because we still don't know. At the jury verdict, excuse me, at the jury trial, he was going, his attorneys were going back and forth between saying he didn't say I don't represent anybody to saying he didn't actually represent anybody. So which one was it that was the truth he supposedly told to the FBI? 
Margo, I, I know I'm a minority in this, but frankly, I don't care about Hillary Clinton's lawyer. Anyone associated with Hillary Clinton is going to be a scumbag liar. That's built in. Michael Sussman has no say-so over my life. The FBI, however, can destroy any American citizen they want with the snap of their fingers. What do we know? Did we learn anything new about malfeasance at the FBI over the course of this trial? Well, we did, and part was what I just pointed out, that they're not happy with being there, the ones who were involved in it, which tells me that they're not concerned with the justice or not. If you're being lied to, and that's what Baker said, he was 100% confident in what he testified. So to me, that tells me that the FBI is just a bunch of swamp creatures anyway. You have a revolving door of political appointees, and then you have the career appointees that are no different than the text messages we saw between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. So we have that. We also learned when this was ongoing that the Inspector General of the Department of Justice withheld information from Durham. We're not getting team players here. And one of the things that I think came out, and this is something I'm working on for tomorrow, is what the opening statement the prosecutors put forth to the jury was that this is not the Democrats' FBI or the Republicans' FBI. This is our FBI. This verdict tells me, no, it's not. It's not our FBI. It's the swamp's FBI. They will protect their own. They will watch after them. And it's not just that there was an acquittal. This acquittal came after less than a day of deliberation. That part actually shocked me. That part actually appalled me because what that means is there was not one member of the jury who waded through all of this evidence. There's no way you can go through two weeks of evidence and discuss it. From my understanding, and I've never been on a jury, but I've had friends who are, and they say, usually you start out with a vote and then they talk about it. If what happened here was the vote came down with, now nah, he's not guilty, there wasn't much to talk about. They just needed one person to say, wait, he texted Baker and said, I'm not coming on behalf of anyone. He told Congress that he was representing a tax expert. We had all of these witnesses that came forward and said what he said or why it mattered. So what it comes down to is you couldn't even get one juror who was pushing enough for them to sit and sift through this evidence for more than one day. So to me, that was appalling. And I think that it all ties into what we have in DC, which is it's an establishment that protects its own. Margo, I'm gonna to rewind to something you said a minute ago. The inspector general of the DOJ withheld information from Durham. For those who don't know, would you please explain what the inspector general is and why that's such a big deal? Sure. So the inspector general is supposed to be handling complaints when there's an accusation against someone within their authority. So every area, the EPA, the you know FDA, everyone has an inspector general. The, the biggest one we saw was when there was a report on the FISA application. So there was like almost a 500 page inspector general report. Well, what happened here was that Durham wanted to get some information and was trying to get some details of what they might need to turn over during discovery. And during that process, they learned that 
there was that Sussman approached with some information about some computer information that a client had come forward with and provided Durham with a summary of that. Well, Sussman then came back and said, well, I was actually there to talk about it with Joffe, about Joffe. He was my client in that case. And I actually met with the inspector general himself. And then when they went back, all of a sudden, there was more information that was provided that wasn't originally provided. In addition, there were two of Baker's cell phones that the inspector general had. Now, this had nothing to do with this case. But to me, it, it points out a bigger problem that really the DOJ's inspector general office was not being a team player. That also ties into Baker. You know, he was the one who had this text message the night before where Sussman said, I'm not coming on behalf of clients. They could have proven that or they could have charged that as a potential false, false statement, but they didn't have the evidence until the statute of limitations came on and ran out. So again, there's there's mess all around this. Golly. All right, Margo, the, Durham, is this the death blow for people who are hoping Durham's going to dig into all the lies and corruption and get something out? Is is it pretty much finished? Is it gone? Is this just one of the little fish and he's going to move on to someone else? What do we know? What do we think we know about that? Well, we obviously don't know because he's keeping a very close lid on everything, which to me tells you he's serious. This isn't like the special counsel, Robert Mueller, who had leaks left and right. But we still have the Danchenko case. And Danchenko is a much bigger situation because he was the one involved with the Steele dossier and he was the one who had made up information. So yes, this is going to be the end of the Sussman aspect of it, but there's still the potential for Joffe. There's still the potential for other information to come out. And as I wrote in a piece today, we now have Durham also having breached or pierced some of the attorney-client privilege. So there could still be more details coming from there. One point though I wanna make about Durham, as much as you're seeing the left-wing media say this is some sort of a vindication of Sussman and an indictment of Durham, Durham's reputation has always been of a straight-laced prosecutor. And all of a sudden, when he's going after the Clinton cronies, now they're trying to make him seem somehow swamp-like, which is ridiculous. You can't change from one to the other. So the fact that he pushed this case against Sussman, I think shows us that it was a serious case. None of this kind of witch hunt that the media is starting to pretend it is. Finally, Margo, I hesitate to even ask because I know the answer is going to be a crushing disappointment. Is anyone in the government, DOJ, FBI, is anyone going to go down ever for anything they've done wrong here? Probably not. What a shock. Margo, thank you so much for joining us again. Please come back soon. Thanks so much, Jesse. I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, there is a time limit for nations when they get nakedly corrupt with two different justice systems. What that time limit is, I don't know. Next month, next 10 years, next 100 years, I don't know. But I do know the clock is ticking. 
You cannot have a country where no one in the federal government ever goes to prison. You won't have a country. All right. All right. Speaking of corruption and government idiocy, we're going to talk about COVID tyranny and accountability and how things worked out. Oh, yeah. That's coming here in a second. Let's also talk about you, your money, your home. Do you own a home? If you own a home, your home title is online. I cannot stress that enough. Your home title is online. It is not just a piece of paper sitting in a bank vault. It is in danger. The biggest cyber crime out there right now, home title theft. It's lucrative. They hack into your home title, steal your information, forge your signature on it, take a loan or several out against your home, and you don't have any idea. It's not like someone's calling you. They don't give up your phone number. But you'll know when you start getting eviction notices attached to your door. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and sign up today. HomeTitleLock.com. We'll be back. We cannot forget. We can't let it go. We can't move on. We can't just look around and say, whew, I'm glad that's over. We have to have a reckoning. And of course, I'm talking about our COVID response. And we've had this talk before, we're gonna have it again. This is not about revenge. It is not. This is about making sure what the government, what the public health officials did to us for the last two years is never done again. And as of right now, doesn't matter how much you complain or I complained or we point out this or point out that. As of right now, there's not a single public health official or politician who's concerned about being thrown in prison for what they did. Not one of them. And you know what that means? That means they'll do it again without hesitation. Without hesitation, they will abuse you and slaughter a nation again because they're not worried. Because every one of them can look back to last time they did it and say, huh, nothing happened to me. That's why we need a reckoning. That's what justice is about. Making sure the next time they consider deciding who is and who isn't essential, the next time they decide they want to mentally abuse a nation's children, they have to have a moment, no matter how sick and depraved they are, they have to have a moment where they sit and say, well, I don't want to go to prison, though. I mean, look at Bob. Bob went to prison. If they don't have to have that conversation in their head, they're going to do it again. There's an article out in New York Times, and it is, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And I want you to understand when, when I read you these things, these are real kids. I mean, it's going to get lost in all these stats and percentages, but these are children. This is the next generation, the future of the country. New York Times surveyed 362 school counselors. You know what they found out? 94% said kids are showing increased signs of anxiety or depression. 88% said that kids can't regulate their emotions. 86% said kids can't focus on classwork. 85% kids are chronically absent. 73% said kids can't solve conflicts with their own friends. And more and more and more. And the thing is, it's hard to, it's hard to drive home how critical this is. We took two years of critical development, a two-year time frame in a child's life, and we, I mean, forget about pausing it. 
forgetting about backtracking it, we put how many of our nation's youth on the wrong path? If they were heading down a right one, we might have just diverted them down a wrong one that many will never recover from, ever. And we did this, keep in mind, for a virus that was no threat to them at all. Coronavirus is not a danger to children. We know that now. That's not unscientific. Uh, I can read numbers. Coronavirus is not dangerous for your child. Take that stupid mask off your child's face and apologize to them for you being a sheep. And I want you to remember, I want you to remember the people who did this. These are the people who should be in federal prison. Read that masks are a very powerful layer of protection, but it's one layer. And if we have so many other layers that are present, masking may be one that could go away. But I would say that, let's say a school where it is, or a particular class, everybody is vaccinated in that class. And also the level of community transmission is declining. I could imagine that situation being where we remove masks because we have all these other layers. That's why I like what Massachusetts has done because what they've said is is that on a school-by-school -school basis, they said if there's 80% vaccination rates, then those schools can lift the mandates. It's understandable why people want to take masks off the kids, but right now, given the level of activity that we have, it is risky. For kids who are under 12, certainly outdoor activities are um, much safer. We can do those activities generally outside without a mask. So for the spring weather where things, where the, for the spring weather where things are really looking beautiful outside, try and keep your kids outside right now. Okay, so it sounds like no indoor movies, no indoor dining is your best recommendation. Well, I would say, you know, those things are certainly possible, um, but I would still be putting your a mask on uh, your kids who are under 12 and unvaccinated in those situations. Children wearing masks in school so they can be safe into a political dispute. And that this isn't about politics. This is about keeping our children safe. Teenage girls are killing themselves across the country because of all those people and many, many more. And I'll tell you something, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but is there a single Republican, national Republican, who's talking about trials and arrests? Is there even one? Can you name one? I can't. All right. We, got, we still got more show for you here. We're going to talk about the economy, how bad it is. We have a great light in the mood. We have much, much more coming. First, let's talk about Eden Pure. Let's talk about the greatest air purifier in the history of mankind, which is very odd because it's also the smallest one I've ever had. I've had a million air purifiers because I have such bad allergies, or I should say I had such bad allergies. And I've always had the, the big towers, right? The, the, they sit in the corner of your room, sounds like an airplane taking off. Eden Pierce, just a little black box. You don't know it's there. This goes right in the outlet in the wall. They're incredible. You will know I'm right within an hour of plugging in an Eden Pure Thunderstorm in your home. Go buy a three-pack. They have a three-pack for sale right now for my viewers. EdenPureDeals.com, code JESSE, gets you a three-pack for $200 off. $200 off. EdenPureDeals.com, code JESSE. Go now. We'll be back.
Are you worried about the economy? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you're stressing. Joe Biden is all over it. In fact, he's so all over it, he penned this long op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. He's got a plan. And he said in there, too, hey, he's not going to meddle with the Fed. And so I hope you're not going to get suspicious that less than 24 hours later, he had a closed-door meeting with the Federal Reserve Chairman. <laughs> Gosh, these scumbags. Joining me now, Joel Griffith, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Joel, I'm not worried, man. Joe's got a plan. Well, I, the president in this op-ed actually claimed that we're just going through a period of transition. And he actually said, don't worry about the slower jobs growth. It's actually a sign that we have a, a stronger economy. And oddly enough, nowhere in this Wall Street Journal piece that he published, nowhere here did he even acknowledge that our economy actually shrank during the first quarter of this year. I'm laughing because this is one of the, the most humorous op-eds I've ever read. Okay, what was so funny about it, Joel? I know you're. I know you have a piece coming up on Heritage about it. I want people to go read that tonight. But because you've been going line by line, fact checking this thing, what are some facts he got wrong, Joel? Well, well, just going from from the start of this piece, where he suggested that at the start of his presidency that he was inheriting COVID that was out of control and a recovery that was stalled. And if we look back at the end of 2020, we actually see state after state that had reopened that had fully recovered. This had become largely a recession, a depression of the Democrat-controlled cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York that refused to reopen their economies. And then for him to claim that we have the best jobs market since World War II, well, if you look at the percentage of the working age population that is either working or looking for a job today, it remains lower than it was before the pandemic. And there's no acknowledgement in this entire op-ed of what's actually caused all of this inflation. The $6 trillion of money printing that has occurred has been injected into the economy. There's no acknowledgement that that was a gross mistake. Joel, you're the smart one. I'm clearly not. So I, just, I do have to ask. You bring up the $6 trillion and everyone knows, well, I should say everyone with a brain knows that's what's caused the inflation. Now... How do we get $6 trillion out? I mean, we put it in. We have too much money now. How do we get it out? Oh, you're, you're right. There's no easy way out of this. What we saw over the past two years, we saw the Fed print trillions of dollars. They basically used that. They bought government bonds. That money was then spent. More importantly, I think, that money ended up in the hands of investors, and those investors had to park the money somewhere. So we saw... Um, a lot of the money going to crypto. We saw a lot of that money going to the stock market. We saw bubble after bubble created by this. All this money is now awash in the system and this money multiplies. When money gets put on deposit at a bank and a bank lends out uh, based on those deposits, that actually creates more money. There's no easy way out of this. Either they try to increase interest rates, they try to absorb some of this cash in the economy, or they let the money run rampant. Either way, we are paying for these mistakes and we're going to pay for the mistakes. The question remains, is Biden, are the other politicians, are they going to successfully point the fingers elsewhere? Or is the American public at last going to wake up to what is actually causing our misery? Joe, the strategic oil reserve. I remember when Joe Biden tapped into that. He's going to take care of these gas prices and tap into the strategic oil reserve. Can you tell me what kind of an update do we have on that? How's the reserve doing? How are those gas prices doing, Joel? Well, 
President Biden loves to throw around these numbers that sound big. He claims, oh, we're releasing one million barrels of oil a day from the strategic reserves. We're going to do this for six months. And that sounds like a lot of oil. And it's a lot of oil. But if you think if you think for a second and remember that we're going through close to 20 million barrels of oil a day, that means that all of the oil that he's releasing from the reserves, that amounts to about eight days worth of oil. It's almost nothing. And that's part of the reason why we continue to see these gas prices increase. And ironically, on the very day a few weeks ago that gas prices hit an all-time high, on that day, President Biden thought that would be a great chance to announce that he's putting a million acres of federal property in Alaska off limits for future oil and gas development. Joe, the Jerome Powell meeting, I mentioned it in passing, and I, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but... What should we make of that? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and please do. The president shouldn't have any say in the Fed, right? So if he doesn't have any say in the Fed, what's the point of meeting with the Fed chairman? Can, can you give me an update here? Like President Biden wants to make it clear that he feels our pain, that he knows what we're experiencing. And that's why he's meeting with the chair. But there's no acknowledgement of the fact that the Fed was working hand in hand with both Republicans and Democrats in Congress to spend into oblivion. We talked about that $6 trillion and it's hard to get our minds around that. That's almost $100,000 per family of four of money that was basically borrowed, that was created, that was printed out of thin air. This was Congress working with the prior president and then working with the current president who doubled down on the mistakes of what we saw during the first part of COVID. That's what's causing our misery right now. President Biden is gonna to try to point fingers at other people. He's gonna to try to point fingers at Chairman Powell. In reality, this was the Federal, the Federal Reserve working hand in hand with politicians to create this problem. We should have never shut down in the first place. That was, uh, we were really sowing the seeds of our destruction then. Joel, there's, uh, there's a way of thinking in this country that Wall Street is Republican, right? Those are the greedy capitalists with their, with their ties on and their little monocles in and looking down at the poors, but it's not really the case, is it, Joel? It seems that Wall Street has gone left or at least gone Democrat for a while now. Well, look, Wall Street benefited quite a bit from this rampant money printing. Uh, you saw politicians buying off votes by sending around stimulus checks, everyone. Republicans and Democrats were both cheering that. And probably a lot of us enjoyed receiving those $1,000, $2,000 checks and child tax credits in our checking accounts. But that was only part of the bailout. The bigger part of this actually went to propping up the stock market. Look, every treasury bond that was purchased by the Fed, that dollar went somewhere. A lot of that was pumped into the stock market and that resulted in asset valuation soaring. And a lot of people on Wall Street did cash out. I mean, think about the market right now, even with the correction that we're in, the stock market valuation is about 20% larger than it was. The entire value of all those stocks, about 20% larger than it was before the pandemic. We have to think, is our economy really 20% better? I think all of us know it's not. Well, that money went somewhere. A lot of people on Wall Street benefited from this rampant money printing. Great, well, we're all taking it in the shorts. Wall Street got 20% better. All right, Joel, finally, now I'm the furthest thing in the world from an optimist, but I, I think we are heading towards a depression. I've said it several times. We're not heading into a recession. We're in a recession. It's just not official for another couple months. I think we are heading towards something severe, not just because of where we are, but because of the idiots we have in charge. Everything they're doing is pushing us that way. Am I wrong? 
look, even if we don't end up in a recession officially or a depression, that's not a, that's not going to mitigate the reality that the typical American family has seen a substantial hit to their standard of living. And these inflation numbers aren't even fully showing that. I mean, for instance, we see the inflation, they say, oh, rent has increased, housing costs have increased 6% year over year. Well, I can virtually guarantee that 90% of the people watching right now have either seen their mortgage payments or their rent increase far more than 6%. If you're looking to buy a house today, your mortgage payment alone is gonna be 70% higher than it was just a year ago. So we're in for a world of hurt. Regardless of what those numbers are showing, people are hurting right now. And my only source of optimism really is that people are starting to wake up and they actually hear people talking about federal spending and the central bank being responsible for this mess that we're in. Joel, thank you so much, my man. I appreciate you. Thanks, Jesse. All right. We've got a great light in the mood next. Before we do that, you want to watch me do radio? You know I do a radio show every night. Three hours. It's that big old nationally syndicated radio show. It's pretty amazing, if I say so myself. Well, you can watch me doing it starting tomorrow. You have to go to thefirsttv.com slash jesse and sign up. I think it's like 100 bucks for a year. How about that? Thefirsttv.com slash jesse. Enjoy. We'll be back. You know, I got a dog. I've told you this before. I'm not a pet guy. I mean, the dogs are clearly the superior pet. And it's not like I hate dogs, okay? I grew up with dogs, but I never wanted a dog. We eventually got a dog. I got two sons. Boys have to have a dog. We got a dog, right? And I feel like... I feel like I'm a worse parent with the dog than I am with the kids. And I feel like I continue to get worse... And the dog knows how to manipulate me. Like, you get the dog right away, and we had all this, no table scraps. Nope, he's only going to eat the dog food, the whatever weirdo health freak dog food the wife buys. So only the dog food, only this and that. We're not going to do, we're not going to do this thing where you're slipping food to the dog. We're not doing that, right? That's, that was the rule. And then he sits there, and he looks at you like that. Or sometimes he'll come up and just rest his head on your lap. And sometimes, sometimes I give him something. It's hard to stop. See, this kid knows what I'm talking about. Don't feed the dog, okay? You don't need to get sad. You just can't feed the dog, honey. We're not allowed. No, don't feed him. It's okay. You're okay. <laughs> I hear you, kid. I'll see you tomorrow. Each morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.